Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and we have another fantastic guest to interview today, the 1st of December. So let me hand things over to my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, to offer his welcome. Thanks, Darren. It's a great pleasure to welcome Howard Bamsey to the podcast. I'll say right off that I can't think of anyone in Australia who can match our guest today for experience in Australia's international engagement with the issue of climate change. Howard began his professional life in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and then sort of wandered all over the place and has worked in almost all parts of the Australian government dealing with climate change, including the departments of the environment and climate change. He's been CEO of the Australian Greenhouse Office, Australia's Special Envoy on Climate Change, Ambassador for the Environment, Ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva, and Special Advisor on Green Growth to AusAid. He was also co-director of the Global Green Growth Institute, which we'll come back to later, and is currently chair of the Global Water Partnership and honorary professor in the School of Regulation and Global Governance at the Australian National University. And Howard, you probably don't realise this, but you were also instrumental in shaping my own views about climate change, because I can remember attending one of those polite Canberra dinner parties with you late last century, I think, when one of the guests around the table made a remark suggesting that the debate about climate change was still an open question and, you know, who knows where the truth lies. And you, in a very uncharacteristic way, exploded down the other end of the table. And you're normally a very polite and measured person. And you said, look, I can't stand this sort of thing anymore. The science is in and I'm not prepared to waste time on people who haven't paid it the attention that it needed. So I remember thinking to myself then, okay, well, that's one big issue sorted out for me. So thank you. Thank you for that. I haven't had to worry about it ever since. And welcome to the podcast. Oh <laughs> Thanks, Alan. I was a lot younger then, <laughs> last century. We both were. <laughs> we both were. <laughs> Look, we deliberately wanted to wait to record this interview until after the US election, given that the result's going to be so important for the future of climate change action at the international level. And we now know that, and we'll talk about that later on. But can we just sort of begin by getting a sense of the landscape as you see it right now? How would you describe the scale and urgency of the climate challenge the planet confronts at the end of 2020? Well, I think it is. It's the major economic challenge that the planet faces uh, because the scale of change and the and the scope of change are greater than we've consciously approached before, I think, on any issue. That's not to say that we have to change everything we do or upend our way of life in any fundamental way, fundamental fashion. I think we can, we can maintain lifestyles and improve lifestyles in the developing world actually quite uh, you know, faster than on current settings, faster than business mm. as usual, 
if we do one thing, and I think there's a one word solution to the climate problem, and that is investment. What we have to do is change the direction of investment. And we don't have to find any more money. There's plenty of money in the world to fix the problem. We really don't need any new technology to fix the problem. What, with what we've got now, we could do that. There's certainly, there's, there are a series of very difficult transitions for people who are dependent on business as usual for their livelihood and are not seeking to minimise that. That's, a, that's the big issue. But really, we could fix it. A friend used to say the good thing about climate change is that it it's a problem caused by human beings and that means it's a problem that can be fixed by human beings. It is urgent. If you look at what we're doing and the way in which the global economy is changing and, and you had to solve an ordinary problem, you'd say, well, we're on the right track because every – I think I'm not exaggerating at all – every single day there's a new indicator of change. Just this morning, you know, I read about a group of began as a group of a hundred companies investing investors committing themselves to climate friendly investment. That's now five hundred. Those sorts of multiplications come before us every day. The problem is the urgency that we just don't have the time. And uh, and so you know, you can be optimistic about the direction of change and the fact that. Particularly, I think, in the business world, this is really now igniting. But I think you still have to be pessimistic that it's going to be, it's all going to come too late, that the numbers are just against us. And already we can see, I just read five minutes ago that this November was Australia's hottest ever. Already those big impacts are with us. And even if we did succeed tomorrow afternoon, in stopping all greenhouse gas emissions, we would still see a worsening climate for a very long time to come. So that does suggest that, you know, generally we've got a problem we are not yet in control of. Yeah. Well, secondly, let's talk for those who are not following the issue closely about the way in which we will try to address the issues you just raised. You know, we've got John Kerry coming into office yep. in the US as climate envoy. What are the institutions and processes through which the international community is trying to address the challenges? Could you just sort of briefly outline then? Sure. Well, there are the scientists, first of all. It's a unique organisation, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a, it's a group of thousands of scientists from all corners of the world who review all relevant climate change science, including the economics. And every seven years or so, they produce a new report which comprehends all that and puts it into policy-relevant context, I guess. So that's sort of the, that's the foundation of the global climate change work that's been around oh, since the 1980s. And Australia played a significant role in establishing it. By the way, that's something I would like to come back to at some point is Australia's and, you know, brace yourself, very positive role in contributing to the international architecture on climate change. Sure. So that's one part of the fundamentals. And then we have a global framework convention, it's called, that means it's a base convention. It agreed everything that could be agreed in 1992. 
at the Rio Earth Summit on climate change. It set up a framework for action that was then added to with the Kyoto Protocol and then mainly the main agreement that, that followed that was the Paris Agreement, which, by the way, changed everything, owing in part to another of those substantial positive Australian contributions. And that Paris Agreement is a platform which contains within it ratchet mechanisms to increase the ambition of countries on climate change. The Paris Agreement brings to one place the different approaches and circumstances, aspirations and commitments of all countries on climate change. And it it sets up a review process or a series of review processes which enable those countries to look one another in the eye and say, well, let's do more over time. So if you go back to Paris in 2015 and look at the commitments made then, that won't fix the problem. Those commitments won't fix the problem. But the mechanisms inside the agreement that allow for ratcheting do create the potential to fix the problem if we can improve and increase that ambition quickly enough. And the next big international gathering that will enable us all to look at one another in the eye again and say, let's do better, is in Glasgow at the end of next year, the Conference of Parties, number 26. It's been a long time working through this framework convention. And as I said earlier, if you look back on it, you'd say, well, there's been steady progress. Yes, it started with all sorts of concepts that made it impossible to fix the problem globally. Many of those concepts have been ditched or modified. We now have a platform where it's possible to conceive of a global solution to the climate problem, but we don't yet have the ambition that encompasses that scale and scope we're talking about and the urgency that would allow us to say, well, we're now on the right track. So was the sort of variable responsibilities of developing and developed countries, one of those problems which had to be resolved before we could move on? Yes, it, it was. It, the jargon was common but differentiated responsibilities. Yeah, I remember what the jargon yeah. was. Yeah, and yeah. It, it meant that, and there are all sorts of jokes about that, but we won't go there at the moment. And it was interpreted very differently by developed and developing countries for a long time. And if I can go to the Australian contribution, because I, I would yeah. like to register this, actually, because I think it's it will be a surprise to most people to understand it. But it was very clear to at least those Australians who were active in the process from, well, let's, let's well, really from the beginning, but let's start after the Kyoto Protocol, that the settings of the Kyoto Protocol in which common but differentiated responsibilities had been interpreted to mean that the commitments required under the protocol would be required, that is the emissions reduction commitments, would be required only of developed countries. So in the protocol, the only targets are for developed countries or economies in transition as they were at the time. And it was really clear just from basic arithmetic, even then, when China's economy was much, much smaller than it is now. But it was clear even then that that wasn't going to solve the problem and that eventually large emitters in the developing world would have to be included. But this was at a time when, you know, fixing the problem was seen almost exclusively as burden sharing. 
that what we had to do, this was going to be a big, costly exercise. The developed world had caused the problem, therefore the developed world should fix the problem. And really what the negotiations were about was everybody figuring out how to spread that burden through the developed world. It became clearer over time, though, that actually this was much more complicated than that and that there were at least as many opportunities for economic progress in the solution as there were burdens. And as this became clearer, suddenly that that charged the discussion, the debate that had been going on for some time about the relative roles of developed and developing countries. And given that Australia had always been, I suppose, well, certainly one of the most redoubtable defenders of the cause that everyone, all the big emitters had to play a part or we wouldn't, couldn't fix the problem. And that our analysis, not everybody was doing this sort of analysis, but that our analysis showed that, then we used a whole series of opportunities in the, in the, in the international process to try to bring that day closer when developing countries and developed countries would have a sort of mutuality of obligation shared on the basis that that obligation created opportunity as well as burden. And the Bali meeting in 2007, just after the election of the Rudd government, when Penny Wong chaired the ministerial negotiations, I think, you know, outstandingly well, if I could say so. And we almost got to the agreement that came a couple of years later in Copenhagen and then then fell victim to forces of chaos, I suppose, was that notion, though, by that time had really stuck. And then a year later at, at, the, at the Conference of Parties in Cancun in Mexico, under Patricia Espinosa, who now is the head of the international bureaucracy on climate change, she was then Mexican foreign minister, strong leadership, the whole Copenhagen set of agreements were confirmed and formalised. And that established the basis then for common action, which still would reflect and respect the differences between countries, but common action that came together in Paris. Now, the basis on which that common action was framed in Paris was not some notion of you know, somehow top-down dictated targets, which was the way most people saw the Kyoto framework, although actually it didn't happen like that, but rather that countries would commit to what they believed they could do, would set out their aspirations for what was beyond them on their current resources, but what they could do if they got assistance, and would make collective the actions that were required in order to defeat the problem, to deal with the problem so that nobody would be left out, everybody would be part of the global action and global accord, and everybody would play a part. And, and this mutuality would create pressure for improving ambition and for basically, as I said earlier, ratcheting up the collective effort. That idea was framed in what were called indicative uh, nationally determined contributions. Nationally determined contributions was the jargon term for the set of commitments that each country would, would bring and actually took to the Paris Agreement or joint with afterwards. 
And if you go back two years to Copenhagen or go back five years to six years, I guess, to Copenhagen, that concept was there proposed by Australia in a form called schedules. There were a couple of other countries who supported this notion, including South Africa, that countries would have to figure out themselves what they wanted to do and then commit to it internationally, rather than be told in some sort of obscure fashion, this is what you should do. And that for some countries, whole of economy targets would be appropriate. For other countries, a whole series of measures and policies would be the most effective initial approach, but that we would bid each other up over time. That was an essentially an Australian concept. Also, we see in Paris a lot of emphasis. If you look through the nationally determined contributions, you'll see a lot of emphasis on climate work in the land sector. That had been, under Kyoto, had been largely ignored except for one provision that was said to be the Australia Clause, although it was later used by a number of other countries. And I think you could say that Australia played a very significant, without any exaggeration, a very significant role in bringing in the land sector, and that's about 20% of global emissions, properly to the whole climate effort. Paris also contained provisions for peer review, facilitative peer review by countries of one another's efforts, which again had been argued for in previous years by Australia using particular models and so on. So I think all of that adds up to a very significant contribution by Australia to the architecture that now exists internationally. Yet, Howard, speaking today at the end of 2020, and I'm speaking for myself, but I imagine many of our listeners, there is still a perception that Australia is an outlier, certainly among much of the the developed world Mm. on climate change issues, a laggard, if you will. Why is that? Can you explain what is the government's current position? How does it differ from a mainstream? Is there even a mainstream consensus that we differ from? Why does someone like me think of us as as being an outlier on this issue? Well, because from time to time and at the moment, we are an outlier. We have, if you ask me to explain it, I can't, because somewhere in the nether regions of this government, as in several previous governments, there are people who I don't know. The word, I think, is just contrary. They just, they bristle when they're asked to say that they agree with the mainstream, you know, with a common view. Uh, And they bristle because, well, I don't know. I don't know why they do, but they do. And so there isn't much common sense behind this contrariness and its resulting outlier effect for Australia. It, It doesn't I can't see any objective way in which it meets our national interest, just not one manner. I mean, and and so I don't know where it comes from, but the result is that we are an outlier. And the one issue on which we are, you know, we're lying furthest out at the moment is this commitment to carbon neutrality, which now our best friends, the UK, the US, uh, EU, all of our major trading partners, China, Japan, Korea, and our closest, most vulnerable friends, the Pacific Island countries, have committed to, want us to commit to, and yet somehow there's some obstacle in doing that, even though our state and territory jurisdictions have committed to it. It's just inexplicable. I don't understand it. 
But if we take it on good faith, how do we articulate our opposition to carbon neutrality? Surely something has been said that makes some sense on some level, or are you saying that we can't even say that? Well, look, let's take a couple of the slogans that we've heard recently. Technology, not taxes. That, to me, is utterly meaningless. I mean, where does technology come from? It doesn't grow on trees. And what the so-called strategy or the roadmap refers to is essentially technologies which the government would, in various ways, commit investment to. And where's that money coming from? Uh-oh, taxes. So I don't, I don't understand that. The other few weeks ago, the Prime Minister, bristling, as I thought, was asked, well, with all of our major trading partners committing to carbon neutrality, why not us? And he said, oh, well, I can tell you one thing, and that is that Australian policy will be decided in Australia. But actually, completely the opposite is the case. This is an open economy hours and and we can already see that Australian business, much to the chagrin of some of these people in the nether parts of the government, Australian business is reacting to the global signals and is, you know, people being run off their feet in places where they help businesses find science-based objectives and, and the ways to reach them. So what's happening is that in the rest of the world where they commit to carbon neutrality or something, you know, a series of measures that will have an impact on the demand for Australian goods and services, we're seeing business respond to those signals. So what's happening actually is that Australian policy, because there is no action to develop it here, it is being decided for us by others. So we're losing the opportunity to to direct that transition in the economy that is inevitable. And that's that cannot be in our interest, I, I don't believe. Is the underlying reason for this the fact that we've failed to develop our own national energy policy in, internally rather than the positions we're taking internationally? I mean, if we, if we sorted ourselves out domestically, presumably everything else would, would flow and we've been very bad at that. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly a very large element of it, Alan. I think uh, we've we've never really had an energy policy in Australia, and if we ever did, if we'd ever been asked, uh, you know, really, the only response could be, well, there's a market, and we established a market, and you know, leave it to the market. That's not really an energy policy. Well, it's not an energy policy at all. So yes, I think that. That lack of clarity and consensus in the community about where we're going is a real obstacle. But I think what we're seeing, and, and this is this again is really unfortunate, is we're seeing that consensus develop in the business community, amongst states and territory jurisdictions, uh, certainly in civil society, and even in the pub, you know, the pub test. The conversation has really changed. And so, you know, there's this fortress on the hill that seems impervious to all of this change around it. And, and that I, I simply don't understand in political terms because I can't see how that's a winner. Yeah, well, you, you can see that in the, in the polling data that's now available mm. on what Australians think, yeah. 
Howard, in the past, you've spoken about Australia's approach to, to climate change negotiations as being one of pragmatism, which you've seen as a hallmark of Australian diplomacy. And I know that's the way we like to think of ourselves, but I'm wondering to what extent is it true? You know, Haven't large chunks of our diplomacy in this area been driven by ideology or self-interest? So w- what do you mean by pragmatism and, and what does pragmatism sit in opposition to here? Yeah, it's a good, very good question, Darren. And I think I'd say, as I did to Alan earlier, well, I was younger then um, and <laughs> learnt a bit, but I think that story I just told about a persistent, over more than 20 years, a fixation, if you like, on one objective, which was universal action as being you know, fundamentally important, and the pursuit of that objective in, in a considered way, I see that as pragmatic in a sense. At the beginning of that period, there was a lot of moralising about the climate problem and the dynamic often was how close can I get to the moral high ground before someone else? And that was, you know, even if you go back to the Kyoto Conference and Al Gore's appearance and so on, there was a great element of that in the, the, the way things were negotiated and in the outcomes. We didn't ever participate in that in the same way. And even during the Rudd government, and even though Rudd said it was the great moral issue of the age and so on, we still kept a focus on what's the best way to fix the problem. And the first answer was universal action. And if you want universal action, what's the best way to achieve it? It's not in this sort of top-down dictation of targets concept, as I said, was never really the way it happened at Kyoto. You know, no one told us. Someone came out with a Spirax notebook and said to Robert Hill, what number do you want? He told them that was the number that we we got. So it was our choice. But it was a conceptually different approach because we didn't set out and bring forward those things that we wanted to do and we thought we could we could do well. We were given a whole of economy target or agreed a whole of economy target and then had to go away and figure out what we could do to meet it. So it was a sort of artificial approach and and it was founded in the rhetoric rather than in the practical challenge. So I do think there were ways in which we approached. It wasn't comfortable because other people had different things in mind when we came to a negotiating room. They wanted to demonstrate that they were meeting the needs of the vulnerable and the poor. Our approach was very cold and analytical, if you like. How do we fix the problem? Someone once said to me that Australian interventions in the UN Climate Convention were scary because there was no emotion. There was no emoting them at all. And in fact, someone who was, I don't think she'd mind if I named her, Louise Hand, when she was ambassador for climate change, was at a meeting where a whole group of people were being assessed for the, you know, one of those uh, preconceived ways of operating, uh, a, a sort of assessment of how people choose to operate in the workplace. And, and someone said that there's a whole group of other people who are not analytical like Australian public servants, who all cluster around the sort of analytical part of the, of the circle. But these people literally will not hear what you're saying 
because they don't hear that stuff. So Louise said to all of her negotiating team, listen, before you make your usual intervention, say a sentence or two about how you feel and how you feel about the concerns of people like the Pacific Island countries and so on. And they did that. And suddenly, Australians who'd usually make their intervention, close their computers and sit there to stony silence, found people stalking from all over the all over the room and shaking their hands and saying, great intervention. Because what Louise had understood was that there, in those rooms, those negotiating rooms, there are people with very different drivers from that sort of essentially analytical and pragmatic approach that I think we we brought. That's not to say I think I probably overstated it when I said that we were essentially pragmatic, particularly, you know, in, in all sorts of other areas. If we could possibly bring a gram of pragmatism to the relationship with our biggest market, I think that would be wonderful. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's another conversation which Darren and yeah. I have, have seen. Howard, one of the groups of people who would have been responsive to the concerns that Louise was identifying, of course, are the, our neighbours in the South Pacific. Yes. Climate change diplomacy, in any case, doesn't just happen in the sort of grand intergovernmental negotiations. It's also an important element of our bilateral relationships. In the South Pacific, the government has certainly provided substantial development assistance to directed towards climate change and renewable energy and disaster resilience. But despite that, we're still facing criticism from regional leaders for not taking the issue urgently enough. You've been an advisor um, to AusAid in, in addition to all your other jobs. What's your impression of how we're going with our development assistance programs? Are we doing the right things or are we doing the right things in the wrong way? Well, I don't think it's black and white. I think we are doing and we're trying to do some of the right things. And, and, and some of the things we've done have been rather clever. One of the jobs I did for a couple of years was at the Green Climate Fund, also in Korea, um, as well as the Global New Growth Institute. And Australia committed $200 million to the Green Climate Fund. And Australian delegates then worked very, very hard on behalf of the Pacific Island countries to leverage that investment to see that the Green Climate Fund responded to the needs of the Pacific. And, and I don't think any observer of that process would have would quarrel with the idea that without Australia's efforts, the approximately, and I may have this number a bit wrong, but approximately $600 million from the Green Climate Fund committed to the Pacific. I don't think without Australian efforts that would have been done. So some of the things we've done have been, ex, 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 I think, you know, very effective and very clever. And I think that was much appreciated by the Pacific. We've now, of course, not gone back to the Green Climate Fund, which means that that opportunity for leverage has disappeared and the Pacific has lost Australia as a champion in the in the fund. But I, I think there are some things that we could do better. And, and the first that I think, by the way, the great contribution the Green Climate Fund can make, if it's given the opportunity, is to enable countries to make their own decisions more effectively. The current structure of international aid really doesn't help that because the way in which capacity is built 
is so limited, so fragmented, so isolated that countries, just particularly smaller countries, just can't assemble sufficient capacity for analysis and implementation to be able to divine and drive their own futures. They are dependent on their aid partners far too often, I think, and there are all sorts of of moral hazards in that sort of arrangement. But I think if Australia can also help build capacity, and we have done in the Pacific, so we're doing some of the right things, but I think we can do better. We can understand better the need for financial innovation. I think we too often, like everybody else who provides aid, assume that the conventional taxonomy of financial support will apply. And actually, we see all sorts of different challenges. If we accept, for example, that renewables are a great opportunity in the Pacific because they would displace very expensive imported diesel. So although you know you wouldn't be changing the global emissions pattern much, you'd certainly be creating uh, great development benefits for Pacific if you supplied renewables. What traditionally we've done is look for ways to help subsidise renewables. But yet for those reasons I just mentioned, the business case for renewables in many Pacific Island countries is probably as good as anywhere in the world. So why don't we have private investors coming in there by the score and simply in a commercial way providing the renewables? And I know there are many private investors who would be very, very keen to do that. And the reason is that the financial instruments available just don't deal with the risks that those investors perceive, which are particular types of sovereign risk, essentially. And if we could have, you know, an Australian fund, if you like, that offered guarantees that would offset the risk that private investors have, then I think, Bob's your uncle, I think you would see very substantial amounts of funding made available. So I think we need some more financial innovation. And and certainly the Australian government is trying. They've established this new funding facility for the Pacific. I hope that that succeeds. I think there's a very large loan component in it. I'm not sure how that will be taken up, but we're yet to see. I think, give them credit, they're innovating and innovation is certainly required. So I think, yes, you know, I think we're responding in some ways, but I think until Australian politicians understand one thing, and that is that this is a deeply personal, deeply personal issue for their counterparts in the Pacific, then we won't really get it. I think today we saw Pacific leaders produce an open letter to the Australian Prime Minister, which really makes this clear, if only Australian politicians, not just the Prime Minister, have the eyes to see it. But if you talk to Pacific leaders it's really clear this is this is an issue they wake up with every morning yeah how can i flip that question around and ask what is it that the rest of the world doesn't understand about australia whether it's our pacific island counterparts or the united nations you've been saying 
Australian politicians need to understand that. What what are they missing about us? And to frame that question, I, I want to quote a column written by the FT's Gideon Rackman in 2019, where he drew comparisons between the, the yellow vest protests in France that were happening at the time, which were triggered by a decision to raise fuel taxes, so a climate change dimension there. And he compared that to the way in which climate change has been used as a wedge issue in Australian politics. And he writes, and I quote, in France, as in Australia, climate change swiftly became another battleground in the culture wars. The more that urban liberals insist on the necessity for change, the more that nationalist populists will use climate change to rally their base against the elite, in quotes. So how do you accept the premise that the politics of climate change in wealthy Western countries does fit neatly into a culture war category? And how would you advise the rest of the world in handling Australia and in navigating these political currents? And not not just for Australia, you know, Donald Trump's America, you you can put into that category as well. Yes, I think you can to some extent. I, I think that's a bit glib, frankly, that analysis. I don't think it's quite like that. And as Alan said earlier, the polling is not showing that polling showing very large majority of Australians want more action on climate change. That's ebbed and flowed, by the way, of course. I remember when Alan was at Lowy, we were talking about the results of one of those global surveys that I think University of Chicago coordinates. Chicago Council on Climate Relations. That's right, yeah. That you, you told me that just before the Rudd government was elected, I think it was 65% of Australians thought that climate was the most important domestic and international issue, that declined to something like 5% before the end of the, the, well, before the end of the Labor government anyway. I think down to them, by the way, but that's another story. And so I think that's a bit glib to put it in those terms, but there's an element of that. But look, I think the way to deal with Australia is to personalise this challenge I won't go into all the details, but that has been done before with a prime minister who was not thought to be amenable to a progressive position and the leader of another country who curiously, it was a very strange, very unlikely relationship with our prime minister, called him up and said, look, I know the way you feel about this, but I really need you to help me. Will you do so? And the answer was yes. And so Australian policy opened to a point to allow us to actually join a group of very progressive countries at the time. So these things can happen. So I think in, you know, I think what's going to, we earlier talked about the Biden presidency and John Kerry becoming the special envoy. I don't know whether either the president-elect or John Kerry has any particular relationship with any of the members of the current government here. But, I, you know, inevitably, if an American president calls an Australian prime minister and says, I need your help, an Australian prime minister is going to give it very serious thought. And when that prime minister's British counterpart calls and said, look, we're really depending on you to help us through, you know, I need, I, Boris, need a successful COP, I think we're going to see... I'm reasonably confident who could predict, but and I wouldn't, but I'm reasonably confident that we will see a change in Australian positioning in the next 12 months. I don't think we'll be an outlier on any of the key issues that will be debated at the COP. We may not bring a sufficiently ambitious package of national action, 
but maybe we will bring a much improved one. So I, I think there's a real chance with everybody else in our universe, the people who influence us, if, if it's personalised in an effective way, then I think we can see some change of heart and mind. Well, let's stick with Biden for a moment, but move out beyond Australia. Biden has, has written about climate change. If we don't get this right, nothing else matters, which is a sort of channeling of, uh, of Kevin Rudd. So he set the bar high, and it's obviously sort of central to his aspirations internationally. What will America's return to the negotiations mean? Can US standing be restored, or do you think that the memory of Donald Trump is going to make others cautious about following on, on behind? So does this change the dynamics in an important way? Yeah, I, I think as some commentators have said after four years of the Trump presidency, no one is just going to take it as written that somehow, you know, that's all over and gone and and America is back in, I think, still partly mythological role of the defender of liberal values and liberal international order. So there's that qualification, but it will have a big impact. There's no question. The US is still the biggest economy and it's still very influential in every other country. And so US committed to action and optimistic and positive will have just in itself a very positive influence, I think. If the US were able to get together with China as it did before the Paris meeting and afterwards, then I think we would see a tremendous change in the international dynamic, not just the obvious diplomacy, but in the backroom diplomacy, which is where decisions are made and changed and arms are twisted. I think with China and the US oper operating together, as they did so effectively previously, that would be a big change. Whether that's achievable now, I simply don't know. I think a lot of the relationships that provided the basis for that cooperation are probably not able to be restored. And whether China and its current stance is ready to collaborate in an active way with the United States, I don't know. And whether Biden would be able to, I don't know. But my goodness, it would make a big difference to the whole international process of bidding up ambition, if they could. And that all comes together at the COP, does it? At the, yeah. The, yeah. That's, we will see whether, whether they yep. can or can't. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, in order for it to come together at the COP, it would have to begin very early, very quickly after the 20th of January. And, you know, you've seen many administrations change as I have, and it takes a long time very often. I think Biden's made a very good start. But, I mean, we know that the State Department is not in a condition to respond as effectively as it might have in previous when previous administrations changed. A lot of the capability there has deteriorated or disappeared in the last four years. So, I'm not sure they can get their act together quickly enough. I hope they can. I think they've got some of the right people, but it'll take a lot of effort. Great.
Howard, you sort of began today's conversation with the one word answer of investment. And I'm wondering what role does the United Nations as an international organization and, and global cooperation play in that? I mean, it's not been a good time for international organizations generally in the last few years, whether that's because it's just hard to coordinate 190, 200 countries to agree on anything, whether that's because of changing power balances and, and the rise of China and, and others. And so there's a lot of skepticism that any kind of multilateral organization can get much done. So what's the link between the United Nations or, or global cooperation and this one word solution over yeah. the next five, 10 years? Yeah, really good question, Darren. I, I think it's not a black and white situation either, but just very quickly, one of the great contributions that I think he hasn't really received sufficient recognition for, one of the great contributions of Ban Ki-moon as Secretary General was in bringing together the political process or really... He didn't, he didn't invent it, but he really strengthened the parallel working and connecting of the political process and the business and investor process. And in the end, he also was very effective in helping governments understand how they could deal with the developed country commitment to mobilise $100 billion a year for climate action in developing countries by this year. So he, he, he set up the UN as the focus, the global focus for climate action. And he brought together several times each year, not just at the COP, but in, in September, traditionally, there's a bit this climate week when a whole lot of people come to New York from business, from civil society, from governments and talk to one another. And as always, when that has a place on the calendar, there's a lot of preparatory work, people in business and other places coming. So what, what I'm describing is a link, a very consciously established and, and fostered very consciously by Ban Ki-moon to uh, use the, the connection between very important politicians and very important business people to demonstrate that what the politicians were debating in their corridors could be highly relevant to what business people were deciding in boardrooms and and that the two things could complement each other in a very positive way. So that that hasn't, I mean, it may not be something that most people are aware of, but it's a very real dynamic. And then you see other organisations like the World Economic Forum also playing a role in that sort of connecting of the politicians and the and the business people. So I I think inside the conference room, if you say, well, you know, we want agreement to X or Y, yes, it's going to be difficult to get everybody to consensus. There are all sorts of, you know, now we've learnt over many years, we've learnt of ways in which to deal with those who are not ready to join. And there are mechanisms for accommodating them or or as we saw in various meetings, just over going over the top and declaring consensus. Yes, that's always going to be difficult and it's not getting easier. But on the other hand, you know, I think there is now a much deeper shared vision for the climate challenge than there was certainly 20 years ago when some people were debating whether it was acquired or not. There's now consensus that we need to fix the problem, at least. And I, and I think that in some ways then you can see that the task of using the Paris platform to create sufficient action to deal with the problem is possible still.
Howard, let's end on a personal note. This issue has been a, an important part of your life for a long time now. And when we opened this discussion today, you were sort of a, you hit a pessimistic note about whether we could get our act together in time. But at the moment, you're working around young people at the ANU and climate change is obviously an issue of the first order for the emerging generation all around the world. So what is it that you say to them when you in encounter classes of students who are asking you where things are going? Well, certainly nobody has a greater interest or stake in the outcome than those young people. And so I, I mean, honestly, try to remain as optimistic as I can be. And mm. though I think we haven't yet got the urgency, I think that new actors coming into the in, into the task and people who can bring in the concerns of the community to the negotiating process, they offer hope that we can we can find ways forward quickly enough. It will mean, and, and this is where I have to qualify my earlier statement, that we have the, all the technology we need. It will mean that we do need more efficient ways of doing some of the things we have to do. And it will mean that we need negative emissions, technology or processes. It won't be sufficient, given the urgency, just to slow down the emissions that we're making. We will have to be able to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and that will require to be done efficiently. We can do it today. We can plant trees. We can do a few other things, but it will need new technologies, which are in development. So it can be done. I don't want to be, I mean, certainly not defeatist about it. And so that that's a very important part of, I think, of dealing with people who are coming into the field. You cannot be defeatist. There is, there is a chance. There's a very good chance we'll do it. It's just that we don't have yet the right trajectory to do it, but we can we can change it. Okay, well, thanks for leaving us with some optimism and resolve, Howard. It was a great conversation, and so thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Darren and Alan. It was a pleasure. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for help with research and audio editing, and Rory Setting for composing our theme music. Thanks, and talk to you again soon. 